Hey, one more thing before you go. Alcoholic parents, a fatal motorcycle accident, living with three autoimmune diseases, divorce, career change, workplace challenges, and more. An open and honest conversation with a professional resiliency coach on how to create good energy, a little bit of humor, and useful tools and tips to help you move forward in a very positive way. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is That Thing About How a Dog Taught Me to Breathe Again. My guest in this episode is Teresa Bittner, who after the significant loss of her first spouse in 2009, the journey from gut-wrenching grief to boldly living her own life, coaching experiences, led to her lead to leave the classroom to help others to find their passion and live their true, unique lives. A brilliant way to move your life forward. Teresa had to manage her elderly parents' health as a remote caregiver, where she learned about elder transitions, including independent living, assisted living, in-home care, hospice care, and the eventual death of her mother due to congestive heart failure, and now memory care for her father with dementia. We have a few things in common. These life experiences have enriched her life and given her a unique outlook on resiliency and living in a world of change. And she published her memoir, Soul Love, How a Dog Taught Me to Breathe Again in 2018. And we're going to talk about everything that can help you move your life forward in the same way. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Wow. That's a Absolutely. Nice introduction. <laughs> Well, it's a, it's a brilliant, wonderful opportunity for people to understand your journey and relate to it and um, hopefully move their life forward in a very positive way as well. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, yes. hopefully I can share that. I love sharing my message and, you know, providing hope. That's kind of my whole mission in life. You know, it, we, when we're hit with a reinvention of our life, as I call it, when circumstances arise and it presents that opportunity for us to reinvent, I think, you know, sometimes uh, it gives us uh, a true life passion and a purpose in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, Certainly. <laughs> I like to start at the beginning, uh, as all my listeners and viewers know, I think that uh, unfolding your life. This is, I don't know if you ever saw the old show, This Is Your Life. Mm. <laughs> it's way back when <laughs> this is kind of like that <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh like uh where'd you grow up sure uh let's see so it all started i was born and raised until i was 12 in new york upstate new york about two hours outside of uh new york city so it was, i thought life was great i was a little miss it and you know it's a very small town and we knew everybody my family had lived there so uh, it was, you know, I didn't really know that things were not quite harmonious in the household. I really didn't understand that I lived in an alcoholic home until we moved. Um, so that was one of the first changes is to move from New York, small town, you know, we're drinking, cussing and party hard was kind of the way life was. And we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. 
And literally the neighbor girl who was my age thought the devil moved in. Oh my God, a little debutante chick. It was horrible. Um, you know, looking back now after teaching middle school kids, it was, it was so tumultuous. Um, I didn't fit in. Nobody liked me. I didn't know what to do. It was different. It was a huge school compared to my small school. So I became what I call a turbulent teen slash rebel without a clue. And just, you know, and it was a tough move for my family because not everybody was party party all the time. Um, so my dad, my mom had stopped drinking and my dad was still drinking and um, he wasn't happy in his job. So I became an outlet for some of the physical and lots of verbal abuse. So that that was something that started. I didn't realize until I got much older that that's kind of where the core of my resiliency came from is knowing how to live in that type of life. Um, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So that's the early years. And I'll oh, go ahead. No, I say it's interesting because I um, I grew up in an alcoholic environment as well. My both my parents were alcoholics. My father was uh, uh, it killed him actually. Um, mm. He died at the age of thirty nine, and he had esophageal cancer. But he also had cirrhosis of the liver and very heavy drinker. wasn't abusive from that perspective, but uh, I I empathize with you. I I understand that environment. It, it creates when you grow up in it, you think that's normal. Until you look in from the outside and you kind of go, wait a minute, <laughs> that really wasn't yes. as normal as uh, it should have been. Yeah, yeah. No, and it was normal for me until I actually, you know, then we were in North Carolina, I went to middle school, high school, and was in college there. And that's where I met my first husband, Chris. Um, I studied computer science um, and he was studying business and I got a minor in business mm -hmm. and we had all the same classes. And I was like, told my buddy, I'm like, I'm marrying that dude. He's the first Good looking, not too nerdy dude to walk in the classroom. We not just too had nerdy. a big laugh about it. <laughs> yeah, not too nerdy, not, you know, yeah, not, yeah, there was all kinds of other interesting people in the class, but he came in with his leather jacket, you know, sunglasses looking like Tom Cruise, but not really. So, um, <laughs> Tom Cruise, uh, uh, Dirty Dancing. Uh, uh, are you kidding me? I forgot that guy from, uh, from Dirty Dancing. Patrick, somebody. Patrick Swayze. Yes. <laughs> Patrick Swayze with his leather jacket and his sunglasses. And yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was a perfect timing. So um, we ended up graduating. You know, we dated and then decided we'd get married. And um, I ended up graduating with a computer science degree. And we and I don't recommend this to anybody. We decided for the simplicity of family that we would have um the graduation on Saturday, get married on Sunday, and then move to Austin, Texas, where I reside now, to start a high-tech job in the same weekend. Wouldn't recommend that for anybody. So there was another big change, like, let's do all of life's events in a weekend and then move. And six months later, we're like, what the heck is going on? Two young kids got married. So, you know, fast forward, you know, we did the high-tech thing and living the dream, so to speak, had two boys. And it was about... It was in the 2000s, and I had graduated from being a software developer, graduated, promoted to being a manager, to then a project manager, program manager, and executive project manager. And it was, it was, you know, it was killing me. My doctor said, "Hey, you know, you're not having a heart attack, sweetie. Um, if you keep going at this pace, you won't survive it." So there was that. And my late husband Chris was also climbing the ladder because that's what we do, right? And I remember vividly, there was some epiphany moments of, 
One, my oldest son told me, mom, that's stupid. When I told him how cool it was, I could wear two headsets and have a conference call going on my computer. I could do three calls at the same time because I was triple booked. And then out of the mouth of Abe's, I was like, mom, that's stupid. And he walked out of the house and I was like, oh, that really is stupid. So between that and then getting sick multiple times with pneumonia and telling the doctor, you know, just give me drugs. He's like, you need to stop traveling and doing this. Um, I decided I would leave corporate life versus getting a promotion. So I left uh, corporate America in 2005 and thought I'd be a stay-at-home mom. That didn't last very long. I quickly just, and the kids and the husband were like, you need to go do something. So I was volunteering at the school often. Um, and my youngest kiddo was in elementary. My oldest son was in middle school. He was starting his final middle school journey. Um, so I then decided, oh, I could substitute teach. That would be fun. No, don't do elementary. I did not like what I called the booger pickers and the pukers. <laughs> so and I'm glad you said that. I, I would have. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I wanted to do elementary. Those kids are hard. God bless those teachers, especially kindergarten teachers. Wow. So I, I did substituting, and finally, some of uh, the teachers at my son's middle school was like, "Oh my gosh, why don't you just go get certified, get an alternative certification, become a middle school teacher?" I'm like. So I did. I went and got middle school science uh, certified and decided that's what I would do. So I loved it. It was great. It was also a place for healing for me to heal and kind of be there for middle school troubled kids because mm-hmm. I had been a middle school troubled kid. So I had the classrooms of the troubled kids because I could relate so well. And the teachers and the administrators were like, hey, you can have them all. This is great. Isn't it interesting how those of us that come from an environment like that, once we kind of see a little bit of light, we decide that we're going to help others within that environment? Yes, yes. So, you know, and I I taught in what's called a Title I school, which had high-risk kiddos, the ankle bracelet kiddos, the kiddos with all kinds of diagnoses. Um, It was hard hard teaching them, big heart for them. Um, and that's when my first husband, Chris, was killed in a motorcycle accident. Kind of a normal day, going about our business. Um, and he was suddenly killed in a motorcycle accident. And there I was left, two teenage boys that were now a freshman and senior in high school. And we lived on a 12 and a half acre ranch, our dream home. Like we were living the life and boom, I was suddenly widowed. I did not have a clue. I didn't know what to do. And I thought before that, I really understood death because I had, you know, I had family members died, aunties died from cancer, and, uh, you know, friends in high school died in motorcycle accidents and other illnesses. And I really thought I got death. And even as a manager, uh, when I was working in high tech, I had an employee die. So I really thought I got death. And it was like, okay, whatever, you go through the process and you're fine. Well, boy, howdy. Chris's death um, was awful. Um, the woman who has it together, as everybody said, I am a project manager by trade and I didn't have it together. My whole life fell apart and I went back to some unhealthy eating and drinking my way through grief. Not pretty trying to be a single mom. Um, so the house got pretty ugly. The, the book solo that we have there. Oh, he's got it. Up. I don't have to show it to you. That's right. Um, is the journey. If you want to know the deep, dark, ugly of what grief looks like when you're 42, trying to raise two teenage kids who are also now rebelling because their dad's not there. Um, Soul Love talks about it. And the interesting part about Soul Love is if you see in the picture, there's a dog. And the dog 
talks in the book because I didn't want to share the ugly stuff. It was embarrassing to me. Some of the things that we did and I did, it, I, the dog talks about all the yucky stuff. Um, and the purpose of writing the book is that after going through, you know, the, a year of pretty much doing nothing, um, some friends were very kind and like, you need to get help. So I finally, and friends, family, and faith are what got me through that. And then going to seek therapy and getting on some antidepressant medicine because I was not behaving normally at all um, really is what got me to the point of after some years of that, I was able to kind of pop my head up, look around and go, wow, things have really changed. I'm ready to live my life. And that took some work. And the solo book talks about kind of that journey from the deep, dark place, as I call it, to where, you know, we began to function as a family um, again. So that's that part. And I'm trying to think where I wanted to go with that. Um, there was another thought I had. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the the fact that um, in my own life, I've had the, those unexpected phone calls. And as a law enforcement officer, uh, yeah. I had to deliver those unexpected, those unexpected news or I was with somebody. The whole reason for one more thing before you go was started because I had been the last person that was with somebody that took their last breath and they that was used to say, can you please tell somebody something, my wife, my husband, my mm -hmm. kid, and my children, and so forth. So, you know, the, um, you know, it's gut-wrenching, as you had, as we said in the beginning in your intro, and, and what you say on your on your website and in your book, mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, a life-changing experience that kind of either sends us down the negative path, like, like it did for you, um, mm -hmm. which coming from the the environment that you came from uh sometimes you know it you don't realize you revert back to what you see or what you grew up with mm -hmm. right yeah so um i know that you said people were telling you hey you've got to get some help you got to get some help mm -hmm. uh what finally kind of clicked to allow you to step out of that environment and, and take a really good look um to get the help yeah. um i scared myself I was scaring myself. I knew I was drinking too much. My kids were mean, like, mom, you're turning into an alcoholic. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was not pretty. Um, being in Texas where we live, we had guns and there was some incidences between my kids that were to me frightening. I was like, oh, you know, one of us, any one of us can be off the rails and something could happen. So I had to like have my friends sneak in, steal the guns and hide them. Was, that's not actually in the book. I don't tell many people about it, but it seems important here. Um, between that and the alcohol, and then I had an incident at school where I absolutely blew up at a colleague that I really loved and was shrieking like a mad woman and screaming and cursing. And afterwards, a very dear friend, she's like, honey, you've now scared the sixth graders. They heard you. If you don't get help, you're going to get fired. I was like, oh, God, I can't get fired. I won't be able to keep my kids. So that was the other thing. I was terrified. I could lose complete control. And, you know kids would be taken from me so i'm like okay you gotta get a grip it wasn't you know as bad mm -hmm. but it, it was enough i got scared silly and people kept telling me oh you're so strong throughout this you're so resilient and all i kept thinking is like i am hanging on by a thread you really don't understand um and yeah and i just want to say michael for you having to deliver that news i can't even imagine because i was not nice to the trooper it was a state trooper that delivered it to me at the school um i was not nice to him I like, I was mean. I was screaming. I was cursing. I turned into a New York Yankee screaming absolute nut job. I was just 
so angry. And you have to also ask those questions like, you know, where was he? How did you know? Blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, what are you accusing me? It was awful. Not at all. <laughs> a wide <laughs> variety yeah. of responses. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, first, you know, you fall apart and then I got mad. I was just furious. I was mad at everybody. Yeah, I, I, I understand that from both a personal perspective as well as a professional perspective. It, yeah. It's, and you understand it. I mean, it's yeah. especially when you deliver, unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, because obviously um, I'm, I'm a very compassionate, empathetic individual. So when I delivered those messages, it hurt me as much to tell them as it, they, mm. not as much as it was for them to, to hear it, but each one of them still it was emotional to me because it was personal. And, you know, especially if I had to deliver a message to somebody that, you know, had said, please tell somebody something. And, you know, it, to this day, I still remember those. And to this day, it still affects me. Um, the, and both in a positive and negative way, you know, both sure. positive because I was able to negative because it's still, it's still here. It still sticks with me. Um, you know, it's, it's perfectly normal for people to go through the process. I know that everybody talks about that five-step process, but in reality, yeah. I, I know it was, it was designed for something different that, than what has been adapted to, but we all go through the anger, the depression, the denial. It really, we really do go through that when you stop and reflect back upon what happens when you get notified that somebody dies, especially unexpectedly. It's a little yeah. easier when you have the long goodbye, like what you're going through with your father with dementia. You know, that we, I, I, my wife and I call that, we call it the long goodbye because, you know, you, you get to say what you want to say. You get to, you know, be able to do some things that you wanted to do that before they pass on, before they forget it, before they lose that opportunity. Um, and, and that still, even then it's difficult. And even then yeah. you, you still go through a little bit of anger, a little bit of resentment, a little bit of, you know, depression, a little bit of everything, because in reality, it's a relief that, without sounding crude, but those people that have gone through this will understand it. The reality that um, it's a relief that, okay, it's finally over. Yeah. And, but then sad because it is over. Mm -hmm. And angry because when they left, in that particular instance, they may not have been fully cognitive of, of you or the environment around them. You know, which then creates an anger and a resentment towards the disease and blah, 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 blah. Um, but we, mm -hmm. we all know all that. But um, so, yeah, it's to make a to make a move in the right direction. I think that uh, that's a really good thing. What did you do? Where'd you go first for help? First thing I did, and this is something I tell people when I do grief counseling, uh, grief, not counseling. I'm not a counselor. I'm a coach. Grief coaching is go to the doctor. Just get a checkup. Um. And that was the thing. I went to get a checkup and he's like, well, why are you here? I'm like, well, I had this little blow up at work. Um, it was pretty terrible. He also was Chris's doctor and didn't know. So I'm here spilling my guts. He starts bawling and says, excuse me, I need to, I'll be back in a moment. So I'm alone in the, in the doctor's office going, oh my God, my doctor didn't even know. And it's some of those things you don't realize, like unless you notify them, they don't know. Didn't even dawn on me. So that was a little awkward. I went to see him and then uh, also was, went to a counselor. The school district I worked in, I cannot say enough great about them. They actually had a, they hired a grief counselor because at that time, unfortunately, there was like, 
three or four sets of kiddos that had lost their parents in the same school year. So that was a, they hired a grief counselor and she ended up becoming my counselor as well. She was amazing. So that's the two things to get help from. And then um, that rolls into the story of me starting my coaching business because I taught for a few more years. My goal after getting help was also to start setting goals again for myself. I'm a big goal setter. And that's one of the things to becoming resilient is having a goal. The first goal was survive. Second goal was get first kiddo graduated from high school. And then the next goal was to get second kiddo graduated from high school. And when I started, uh, and then I decided to go back to school to get a master's because I always wanted to get a master's. Plus, I was like, what am I going to do on these lonely nights? I don't need to keep drinking and eating, so we'll go to school. And through that process, I ended up um, hiring myself a life coach. And I learned about what coaching was. And I'm like, holy cow, I've always wanted to start a business. When I left high tech, I thought I would. This is so cool. So I start. I was in the middle of getting my master's, and I started dating. I am married again, happily. It's been awesome. Our blended families are great. And I started thinking about what do I really want to do? And I really, really, really wanted to help others because so many people kept telling me, you're so strong, you're so resilient. And I began to realize that I did have a gift that not everybody has. I took the situation and I survived it. I was actually starting to thrive, going to school, getting a boyfriend, you know, the kiddos were doing okay. Um, so I decided in 2014 that I was not going to sign my teaching contract and start my business. Um, I got my teaching, uh, my coaching certifications through the International Coaching Federation. Always tell people a word to the wise if you're going to hire a coach. You might want to find out what their credentials are because anybody in the U.S. can say they're a coach. In other countries, there's coaching supervision, a little bit higher standards. But in the U.S., ask your coach what credentials I have and what training. So I started my business in 2014, and here we are. And it started out as grief coaching only, but interestingly enough, not a lot of people want grief coaching. And it became more resiliency coaching through changes of jobs, loss of things. When Hurricane Harvey happened, I was able to do some pro bono coaching there. So that's kind of where we are now. And I'm, unfortunately, the pandemic has helped my business. Well, it's cratered others. So there's lots of folks out there that are kind of lost and wondering what's up and how to be resilient in their life. And um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at today is helping others with that. Now, do you think that, um, I mean, obviously COVID created a whole new environment of different uh, types of, uh, without mm -hmm. people really understanding it, I think number one, loss, um, mm -hmm. two, grief that they weren't expecting, mm -hmm. uh, and some of that unexpected. And obviously everything that's associated with that loss, including the anger, the resentment, the especially because yeah. of the, the circumstances around it. Um, and mm -hmm. I know you said that uh, it increased your business in regard to to that, but did you find that um, over that time period, I, I know that uh, with people who lost their jobs, there were people who, um, yeah. and I always forget this, I should really write this down. Um, this shows my age a little bit. Uh, where 4 million people, 4.2 million people decided that uh, life as they knew it really wasn't normal. Mm. I can't do quotes, but you know, that, that some, this normal was like my wife loves working from home now uh, and yeah. her, her employer 
uh, now allows people to flex their schedule to where they can work at home for a couple of days a week and, and then work to work like three days a week, which uh, created a whole different perspective on what really is normal because yes. it allows us to have more of a family life, more of a, uh, a, a personal life, more, you know, we get up in the mornings, we have a cup of tea, we watch the sunrise, and then she just walks into the office to go to work instead of driving an hour and 15 minutes in traffic and then listening to the news in the morning going, oh, there's a five-car pileup here and a two-car pileup here. This morning, there was a 12-car pileup. Luckily, she's working from home wow. today, but you know there was a 12-car pileup in, you know, on the same highway that she goes to and not too far from the exit that she takes. Well, she could have been in the middle of that. So you stop and reflect upon that and go, wow, we're loving this mm -hmm. opportunity. Um, do you think that grief, grief is hidden sometimes in, in uh, us not being happy with our current circumstances or our present situation in, in wanting to make a change like, like that, like, like you just did. And like my wife does working from home partially. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause the, the, thing about not knowing the unknowing the human brain i'm a big neuroscience nerd human brain does not like not knowing so mm -hmm. we make we make knowing we figure it out ourselves and um the pandemic caused lots of that as well as it, there is there's hidden grief and i've done some webinars on it as well because there's the grief of the old life we had right. and what we want i always and a really great resilient characteristic is to look at What's the opportunity in this situation? I mean, I started my business and the mom, uh, our joke is like, oh, thanks, mom. I started my business and now you decide to get congestive heart failure. So I, I get to do that back and forth. I'm trying to start my stinking business. And I remember it was, I was new in my, my official coaching and I was sitting in a traffic light bawling, you know, in Florida trying to take after a hospital visit. And I, all I could think of, I could hear my coach going, what's the opportunity in this situation? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm learning about the elder care system. Wow. Whoopee. Who knew how screwed up that was? Oh, yeah. Um, so by looking at the opportunity is a way to get through that grieving. And I think the other thing in the Western world, we don't talk about grief we don't talk about death yeah. or dying we talk about oh they passed they're it's taboo. longer with us yeah it's a taboo and i think making it more natural and a part of life and celebrating i love life celebrations because that's a great way to look at it um and then yeah. acknowledging that's the one thing like if you have grief and you're sad about stuff don't stuff it it will leak out that's the thing you know my friends and i found out the more you stuff it it's going to leak out yeah. and it could look like tears it could look like you know screaming at your colleague out of the blue um like i did so allowing our emotions and taking time to feel them in a healthy way right. i channeled my anger since we lived on uh, a ranch chopping down trees that's what i ended up channeling <laughs> it to it, physical therapy like that was the best thing i go out there and just lay waste on a tree and my kids would be like "Ooh, mom you're right fine uh, <laughs> i heard a rumor there was like 30 or 40 acres of trees just wiped out so no, that was me. <laughs> that was you. I, I, thought, I thought, you know, just maybe it might connect. I'm a cop, right? So I, can, I connected that. Now we go back to what I said earlier. I didn't ask, what were you doing last week with an axe? Chopping down a tree. Chopping I don't live there anymore. I had to get rid of the ranch. We got rid of the ranch. It became silly to have um, too much for me to take care of. I, I understand. I relate to that. Um, 
taking care of your parents, I mean, obviously it's a whole new experience. And if we can touch a little bit on, I, I know that you took care of your mother, you, you said you have congestive heart failure, which in itself is, you know, it, that's another long goodbye because that's slow and it, it, it kind of takes its time. Um, in regard to uh, dementia with your father with dementia, uh, it, can we talk about that just for a minute? I know we, uh, oh, kind yeah. of sidetracked just a little bit, but mm -hmm. in reality, you and I have something in common. We understand what it what it is to take care of a parent that mm -hmm. that has dementia, and um, how that affects not only the family environment but um, our personal relationships, like. You know, wives, husband and wives forget how to be husband and wives, fathers and daughters and forget how to be fathers and daughters, mothers and daughters, same thing because of that environment. Um, when did you find out your father had dementia? Oh, gosh. I'm writing another book about it. It's called Elder Care Nightmare, Mission of Love, because we were do I was going back. And so nobody lived in Florida where my parents were. So it was me or my sister going back and forth about once a month to check on mom and dad. And it's it's, it's clear as day. The book begins this way because we had gone because we're like, mm, things don't seem quite right with mom and dad. You know, we're hearing stuff. It's not making sense. But in an alcoholic family, there's lots of denial and not truth. So we went and we visited mom and dad. And we decided, okay, their joke about each one of them, the half that there's good and working together, they make a whole. We're like, okay, they seem to be doing okay. They seem to be doing fine. Two weeks after that, I get a hysterical call from my dad, who never, ever would call me. He was always mom. <clears throat> um, calling me crying, I need you. I need you to come here. And I was just like, what? He's like, your mom, she's in the hospital. I was like, what? So that began the long journey of flying back and forth to care for them and seeing that. <clears throat> and there was, you know, and so I started visiting more often. And I took care of her for like three months during the summer. And then I had to go back to teaching because that was the time frame of it. And Things just sounded weird that were happening. So my kiddos and I and my niece, we drove from Texas to Florida to see them for Christmas. And that's where I began to realize something's not okay because dad spent the whole time cussing about the GD present he couldn't find for mom, like obsessively. And it was really weird. Mom was not happy. Now I know she was sick and dying. She was a total not nice bitch really that's the only word I can think of and it was so surreal my kids were like mom what's wrong with grandma and grandpa I'm like, I don't know this is weird my niece was like I don't know let's get more wine sure sounds like a great plan um so and it it was so <laughs> scarring for my kids and I this is the we Christmas day was spent like that the next morning we got up at like five o'clock we had planned to stay for the rest of the week we got five o'clock in the morning and drove straight through from Florida to Texas in record time. We didn't speak for three hours. Finally, it was wow. like, um, hey, I gotta go to the bathroom. They're like, mom, are you okay? I'm like, no, are you guys okay? No, like, holy cow. To this day, my kids will not visit my dad in memory care. They're like, I, we can't do this again. Um, I did not realize how upsetting it was to them at that time. I knew I was upset. I knew I was right. just like, I don't know what's happening. This is out of control. Um, I didn't actually know then that dad had dementia. It took a couple more months and mom going into the hospital and him calling again and going, Oh, the house is a disaster. This mom would know 
piles of stuff, clothes not clean. I'm like, this is so not mom and dad. And then dad going, I need help paying the bills. I'm like, whoa, dad can't even log into a computer. He worked at IBM as a computer guy, like from day one. And to see that and to see how confused he was and like, I need your help. And I'm like, dad, how do you need my help? Like, you never ask for help. So that was the beginning. And I started taking pictures and I shared it with my sister who was a geriatric nurse. And she's like, uh, things are not good. I'm like, okay, no more denial. And I finally had to trick him into going to the doctor for physical so he could take care of mom. That was my trick. Um, and we got it diagnosed. From that perspective. Yeah, it's that's how we first kind of noticed a little bit yeah. about uh, my wife's father was that in itself, he was asking for help to get, he hadn't paid the house taxes and he didn't understand, but he did pay the electric bill 47 times. Um, oh yeah, yeah. We paid our our credit cards. We had a nice credit on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and she just, mm -hmm. uh, they just let it kept happening. Nobody said anything. Nobody, they just let him pay 47 times. It That's was, criminal. Yeah, pretty close. Um so, of course, I, we came in and started taking care of that. And we started noticing other things because he was also in a different state. So it's difficult yeah. to, to really understand it until you start getting a closer look. And then when you uh, we brought him up here, um, finally, we figured out exactly what was going on. We thought it was his Parkinson's because he'd been diagnosed with that. But it, it turned mm -hmm. out he was misdiagnosed with Parkinson's. And actually, because of the Lewy body dementia, had Parkinsonism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My wife would be proud. I have a hard time saying that one. <laughs> you, did, you did good. <laughs> I, I said it perfect. <laughs> so yeah, it it um, the journey that journey. I'm sure you know it compounds upon itself again because that's a long goodbye, and you know mm -hmm. it, you don't always get the opportunity to to say you you get to say what you want to say, but the opportunity isn't always there to whether or not they understand it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he's um, he's got vascular dementia, so it's a slower one. But when we have what the little mini strokes that cause it, it's right. like chunks go. And now he doesn't know who anybody is. Um, I moved him here. Oh, the whole, oh, my God. That whole thing was a nightmare. Um, it was well, yeah, an absolute uh, nightmare. It's a good thing. Uh, well, and then. Go ahead. I was saying it's a good thing you're writing that book because a lot of people don't understand all the intricacies of having to take care of an elderly person, a relative. The legalities and what you need to have done and what, you know, the the powers of attorney, the health powers of attorney, the, you know, everything that you need that you really don't have a clue sometimes as to the fact that you need all this in place before you can literally just take care of your parent. Yes. Luckily, I got on the bank accounts early. Mom saw that she needed help made her madder than a hornet but she realized she needed help so that way i could watch from afar right. but yeah getting the powers of attorney mom was literally in hospice care because she was in the hospital then in a rehab for the umpteenth time in her life we're not right. gonna really rehab her we're just gonna keep her for a while um and i had to trick both of them i had to tell her if you want me to take care of dad when you're gone because you're in hospice, mom. You know what that means. Oh, I just signed up for hospice so I could leave the hospital. Okay, mom. Whatever. Leave the hospital. <laughs> yeah. No, she was a, she was a little pistol. I'm um, sorry. I I'm her. sorry that made me giggle. <laughs> I said, no, it's a giggle or one. She's like, I just tricked him. I just wanted to get out. I'm like, Ugh, mom, you don't like this. Is not a game. I'm gonna go home. No, you're not, because they won't let me let you home. Um, 
And then I had to do the same to dad to get him to sign it so he could take care of mom. And then my mom ripped me a new one the next time I went to see her. You bamboozled me. And it was so hard to see her wanting so hard to be able to still control and right. everything. And it was like, mom, game over. Like, I know everything that's going on about you guys. Like, there's no more hiding. It, right. We're done. Like, I'm here to take the best care of you as I can. I mean, it was interesting because she asked me near the end, like, why would you do this? We were so horrible to you at times. Like, why are you doing that? And the cool epiphany moment happened. One of the trips home, I came back and I was a wreck, angry, blah, blah, just fuming. And my new husband at that time, Bill, was like, I don't want you going back. Like, you can't do this. This is like emotionally unstable. Like, you come back and you're wrecked. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I can't. He's like, you don't have to go back and take care of him. I'm like, no, I have to. I have siblings. They're not able to. I'm in the right position. And it was a kind of a God moment for me. And I was like, oh, I'll turn this into a mission field. I'm just going to show them love rather than trying to fix things because you can't fix anything. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I had that mental shift of like, I'm just going to show them love. And that was what my mom was like. She's, being, she's like, she's, you're being nice to me. You're not yelling at me anymore. I'm like, mom, I can't yell at you till I'm blue in the face. That never so I'm just going to love on you guys the best that I can. She was so surprised. And that's um, that made the hugest difference because when I looked at it as a mission field, because I took my kiddos on mission trips and I've done mission work, um, I was like, oh, I can do this. I won't do it perfectly, but I'll do it the best I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was, um, it's, it, it changed everything. It didn't make it any easier. I mean, there's still days when I get grumpy and angry about it. And why me? I did my dad's taxes last night. Well, I'm like, we're, we're how long is he going to live? <laughs> how yeah. long is he going to live? Oh my God. He was like a hard drinker and nothing's wrong with him other than his memory. Nothing. Yeah. It's, but we're human. We're, we're all human beings. Yeah. And, and in reality, it's interesting how love can open a door and, um, mm -hmm. You know, allow things to come through like that. You know, it takes us sometimes longer to get rid of the anger and the resentment, especially growing up in a, in a, a dysfunctional environment. And um, I say that because, you know, having two alcoholic parents trying to raise children is dysfunctional. And, oh, yeah. you know, it's something that uh, we as children have grown up with and have learned to either manage it or m ensure that that does not happen to our children. Um, at such a point, sometimes we go into an extreme. Sometimes we get a nice balance. Um, sometimes it doesn't always work. But right. you know, we're we're still human beings, and love seems to, you know, kind of uh, my my in relation. This is your story, but it, just a quick note. Mm -hmm. You know, we had the same kind of circumstance with Diane's father. He was a bachelor for when uh, forty years, something like that, wow. after his divorce. Uh, Diane's mom and you know he was just an angry little man that sat home and drank and you know he was always in control and always wanted everything his way and his way and his way and that was about it and it took him a long time to uh to kind of realize that hey we're just here to take care of you and you know give you you know the last 18 months of your life a very positive thing instead of you know you sitting in a facility someplace or you know, because he he desperately did not want to go into a facility. Uh, he watched yeah. his his dad had polio and spent oh. the majority of his life in a facility. And so, mm. as a child, he visited those facilities. And um, you know, it just it just wasn't. And that was way back, you know, in the fifties, sixties. So it it was a different 
those facilities were different than today, but you know, it always stuck in his mind. He's like, I'm not going in one of those places. And, you know, finally when he relaxed and said, I'm just going to enjoy this, you know, it made life a whole lot easier. Yeah. It still was a challenge trying to catch him walking out the door at three o'clock in the morning, dressed, fully dressed if he was going to take a walk. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the other, those were the signs that it was like, okay, I was telling my siblings, because one of my siblings was like, oh, you're making this up. I'm like, no, the neighbor called me. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do in Texas. Dad's outside running around in his underwear trying to find mom. That's not helpful. (laughs) Like, nine one, like if they catch him and the cops come, he'll go to a, facility and we won't have any choice where he goes true so yeah um, so luckily they had invested well and he had you know from his retirement he had help so he's able to be in a nice facility now which is cool very cool i'm happy happy to hear that they have great places they're super expensive though it's like not everybody can do it which i think is also criminal yeah i could go on about we could go on about that that'd be a whole nother show that would be a whole nother show that'd be about a two or three hour show i think uh with everything involved in elder care in regard to all of that um but yeah it's crazy uh dementia care here in arizona starts about nine grand a month oh wow Ours is five grand, and that's about the going rate. Not the cheapest, definitely not the most expensive, but yeah. You can. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. No, it's like, who has that kind of money? Oh, exactly. It, it's just ridiculous. Um, let's get back to you. So okay. <laughs> had you always wanted to be an author? I mean, I know that you, you decided to write the book, and um, within that book, it kind of allowed you to uh, escape and uh, help others and uh, kind of define. And uh, it, it's done with the dog. So I'm assuming the dog is real. The dog is real. Um, and did I always want to be an author? Funny you should ask that. I had lost all of my creativity. Um, and, you know, I was busy. I was busy being a high tech executive, being a mom. And I for- had forgotten that I love to write. I love to talk, I love to write. So, I started the book. I didn't know how to start a book. I didn't know anything about writing. I had this great manuscript and I was in a coaching mastermind and this wonderful, awesome master coach said, have you taken any classes on writing? And I thought, no. So there was a great, uh, there's a great thing in Texas called the Texas, uh, the Writers League of Texas. And the Writers League of Texas has courses. So I took some courses and realized I was eating crayons. I did not know how to write. So I took some courses and wrote a better manuscript, found out how to do it, and, you know, decided to self-publish, did it all myself. You don't need to do it alone. That's my my motto. You don't need to do it alone. Death, dying, or writing a book. Always better. I had a great writing critique group. So the dog is real. Hans was something we bought. Um I decided, I think it was the first year. It was the first year after Chris died. I was like, okay, we have had way too much mopey stuff. I've always wanted a Doberman. Your dad didn't. We'll get a Doberman, a big scary dog to scare people off the property if it gets bad. So I went, we searched, I found this dog. We went to pick it up. It was a typical cold, icky, sleety Texas day. And I didn't want to go to a puppy mill and apparently it was, I was horrified. It was, it was, it was funny enough. I mean, funny and slash scary enough that my older son's like, mom, you want me to go to the door with you? I'm packing. I'm like, no, you don't need to go to the door with me packing. I'll get the puppy. I mean, it's a puppy for God's sake. So we brought this little puppy home and Hans, he was a mess. Oh my gosh. He, uh, he was so fun, such a fun puppy, but it was like living with my little pony in your house. He thought he was a lap dog. Always thinks he's a lap dog. And, um, 
he brought laughter to us, was not much of a guard dog. He was pretty scared of everything, but he barked loud. So that was what was helpful. Barking loud um, is the first step. Oh my God. But he was, he was literally like, if you came up and like said hi to him, he'd probably pee himself and wag his tail all over the place. And he, he, it was interesting because it he was a strange dog and that he would intently stare at you with his brown eyes. And that's where I decided he's a therapy dog because he was like my therapy dog. I talked to him and I cried to him on the couch. And, and, you know, a lot of the book is about the conversations Hans and I have and the conversation he has about being worried about, Ooh, I don't know what mom's doing. She smells funny. That's me drinking. She's acting funny. Oh, oh she's barking at the kids. That's terrifying kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's, so. you know, it's, it's brilliant the way dogs actually I mean, I, I believe that, that that when they look into your eyes, they really see your soul um, and they know what's going on. You know, our, we have a little Shih Tzu. It's not as big as a Doberman. My favorite is a German Shepherd. My wife still let me get one yet. I say yet, knock on wood, yet. <laughs> if you're listening to this episode, dear. <laughs> um, the Let him get the dog. <laughs> yeah. You heard that, right? <laughs> the... Uh, uh, our Shih Tzu, Charlie, um, he knows when something's wrong and somebody's upset and somebody's sad. When somebody hurts themselves, he comes running, you know, um, it, it just, uh, he's always there and like he knows. And mm -hmm. I, I, I think that writing that book from that perspective is a brilliant idea because so many of us can relate to our animals and uh, yeah. part of the family. They're our fur babies mm -hmm. and, you know, they're part of the family, not just an object, they're part of our family. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting because we lived on a ranch, so we didn't have ranch animals. We had dogs. I had two other dogs at the time, actually one other dog. And then my son's like, Hey, you need this other dog. I know I didn't, but we got another dog. So we had three dogs and then we had three or four cats at the time. So lots of animals, but Hans was more, I mean, all the animals could tune into the emotion, but Hans was like super respectful, super receptive to it and super intuitive. Um, a little spotty old old gal she's gone christy was she was pretty intuitive but once i brought hans in she was like i don't even want to talk to you anymore and the cats were like really mom we're out <laughs> the cats cat yeah I, I'm a, we had cats for 18 years before they passed and we're giving it a little break before we're going to bring another one in um but because they actually all passed within a matter of a couple of months with from within each other i think because they'd been so long oh, wow. together that they kind of went you That's know right. I don't want to be here any longer and that's kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, cats are their cats are a unique personality. We'll just call it that unique personality. Yes. How long did it take you to write the book? Oh my goodness. It took me forever. Oh. <laughs> so I started writing the book in bits and pieces in 2014, but I'd write it and become too much. I'd put it down. I'd write it. It'd become too much. I put it down, but it was like God and or other people are like, Teresa, when's that book coming out? Well, you got to tell your story. You've got to tell your story. I'm just like, I don't want to tell my story. A, because it's hard to write. It was therapeutic, but it was horribly hard. You know, it was very emotional to write. Um, and then, um, I decided uh, once I started going to the Writers League of Texas, I joined a writing critique group. And with a writing critique group, you have to turn in paper. You have to turn in your writing like every other week. So I was like, well, crap, I Homework. guess I'm writing the book. <laughs> I guess I'm writing the book. So that happened. It took about, once I got really serious, about two and a half years to write it, get serious, and then go through the editing process. Well, I can write. Uh, the other thing I did that's unique that I share with my 
share with people is I didn't really know how to write the book or where to start. So I thought chronological and I didn't remember a lot of it because I wasn't journaling, which is a great thing to do people out there in the world. I went to Facebook because I promised my family and friends that I would post daily during daily for the first two years after Chris died. So they know I didn't off myself for, you know, anything like that. So I had a history of what was going on from Facebook which was a crazy way to write the book, but that kind of became how I did it. And then I hired a great editor who turned my mush into a really beautiful book. That's, how, that's outstanding. What a brilliant way to approach that, um, especially from a chronological perspective. Uh, Facebook, Facebook isn't always useful, but in that particular case, that was pretty cool. Um, who, how can you help somebody? How can you help somebody? How no, can no, I help no. Somebody? How can the book help somebody? Oh, the book. Well, that was the thing. When I finished the book, I decided, I'm like, okay, God, this is your book. You do whatever the heck you're going to do with it. Go out, do whatever it is you do. And it, um, I've gotten so many neat 4.7 stars on Amazon. Ooh. Um, but I got so much great feedback as it helped people to grieve that hadn't grieved other griefs. It helped them to understand what it looks like. It's helped people who don't know about grief understand that just because somebody says it's okay, I'm fine. They're not really fine. And the other thing it's done is for people with pet loss, it's actually helped them to kind of understand, yeah, pets are important. How pets can help you through the grief and can be there for you. I think one of the neatest things is that in one of my writing critique groups, there was a minister pastor and he's like, oh, my gosh, Teresa, I thought I got it. I thought I was such a great, you know, being there for the widows. But I didn't really understand how visceral and how raw the grief can be. And that's what this book, the part of it is to provide hope because there is hope after loss. And also to paint a picture of what yucky, icky, just what life can look like after grief. And it's not beautiful and there's not the stages. I mean, yes, you go through the stages, but it's this mishmash ball of emotions so that's what the book can do for you plus there, there's some humor in there there um all my people who've read it are like wow crying in the first page thanks apparently you need tissues because it's i write i write from heaven at first hans and chris are in heaven so i'll give you that little tidbit of what's going along um and you can find me and my book at oh i was going to do the www boldfulfilledlifecoach.com. I'm going to spell it out because it's really long. So www.boldfulfilledlifecoach.com. So boldfulfilledlifecoach.com. You can learn more about me, my coaching business. Um, you can get the book there. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. There's Kindle, ebook, paperback. Um, and hardback as well, if you wanted to get something like that as well. So that's the book. And I'll make sure that, that I'll make sure that that's in the show notes, by the way, so that everybody that uh, is listening to this can have an easy access to uh, just clicking the link, and there it will be. So let's talk a little awesome. about your coaching business. Sure. Um, so the coaching business, I contract. I do contract work. I'm a coach, I'm an author, and a speaker. So my favorite topic to talk about is resiliency and how to bounce back from change. And I coach one-on-one -on -one, and I also coach businesses and or, you know, 
teams. But the thing that for coaching is it's a relationship between two people. Typically, a client is someone who is stuck or unmotivated, lost their job, perhaps a divorce, loss of another one. And just like I, I keep a coach on my bench to help hold me accountable. And it's okay. I, I also form an accountability partner. And it's really like if you're ready to bounce back from something or move forward out of that stuck place, coaching is a great way to help that. And I look at it as, you know, we hold up the mirror, coaches hold up the mirror. We kind of clean it off so you can see how great you are and do those great things you want and kind of break through any blockages you have or limiting beliefs and things like that. So I do love to coach people through that. It's through the pandemic. There's been a lot of changes, the great resignation. People are realizing, Hey, there's a lot more to life. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty still out there. And now we have the unfortunate war with Ukraine and, you know, people are hurting. So you don't have to do it alone. And you can really build resiliency into your life by learning about it as well. And those are some of the favorite topics I love to give uh, webinars and or presentations on, you know, how can you build resiliency? How can you build back from loss professionally and or in life? So anything that you might be thinking about, career changes are another great spot for coaching. I'm helping a number of people through that right now. And uh, workplace anxiety, that was the last thing I blogged about. Um, my if you go to boldfulfilledlifecoach.com slash blog, you can find my blogs. I type about, I write about, you know, anything about resilience. I've written about my autoimmune diseases um, as well. A whole other topic to talk about for, you know, how you can be resilient and things I've learned along the way. Love to share what I learned. That's another way I keep writing. That's outstanding. And I know you're in the middle of another book. We talked about that a little bit ago. So mm -hmm. hopefully that will come out uh, pretty soon, um, you know, or, or within within this year, you think? Mm, probably not till next year. Yeah, we're at March and there's quite a bit more to write. Um, I am writing, you know, a chapter ish a month. Uh, so plus, you know, cause I've got a pretty full coaching business. So, so this works. the writing's a little slower than I like, but it's it's coming. It's coming faster than it has. And it's like, okay, I got to write that one because apparently an autoimmune disease book is coming next. So I don't know. <laughs> We'll have to talk about that one when you get it out as well. Um, I've got an autoimmune disease myself, so we could have oh, wow. a, a very unique conversation. Um, yeah. I'll make sure that everything's in the show notes and, and on the website awesome. so that uh, dedicated you. to you that we can uh, make sure everybody can find you, get in touch with you, and also where to find the book as well as your coaching services. Um, Teresa, this is one more thing before you go. So before mm -hmm. we go, do you have any words of wisdom you'd like to share? Ah, words of wisdom. Let's see. Oh my gosh. So one is don't go it alone. Find somebody, a coach, a friend, a pastor, somebody who you can trust so you don't have to do these things alone. And the other thing is do the best you can and know that's enough. A great question to ask yourself is, did I do the best I can and was it enough? Not perfect. This works great. Great words of wisdom. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing your unique journey with uh, uh, me and with our listeners and viewers. I really appreciate it. You've got a brilliant path to helping people overcome and uh, to be resilient. And uh, I think that uh, everyone should take the opportunity to reflect upon themselves. Visit your website, which will be on the podcast. Um, excuse me, on my website as well, so that they can come and uh, visit you and in the show notes 
as I stumble over my words. Uh, thank you very much for taking part in this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the listeners. And, you know, I'm all about sharing and helping people go, go and grow. That's a good thing to do. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go. Have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.